Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 8, 18 to 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A few things before uh, I pray for us this morning. Uh, First is this. uh, This is the last week in our three-week series that we're calling Desiring Heaven. And so if the aim for the last three weeks has been very, very simple, uh, we want to create in us as a church a longing for our eternal home uh, and alternatively a, a distaste for things of this world. Uh, and so a longing for our eternal home. This is the last sermon in that series. Next week, we're starting a new series uh, called Ten Words on the Ten Commandments. And so if you're wondering uh, what do those mean for us today, uh, are those just some archaic, you know, law? Um, you know, back then, um, join us this summer as we unpack each commandment one by one each week. We're very excited about that. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we confess uh, that three weeks into this series, our longing is still much too weak. Our desire for heaven still not as strong as we'd like it to be. We thank you for the grace and mercy that comes to us in Christ Jesus this morning. Jesus, who has sent us his spirit to groan with us, to pray for things we don't know we need to pray for. So we ask that now by your Holy Spirit, Jesus, you would create in us a longing for our eternal home. I pray that especially as we look at suffering this morning, that you would help us to be those who suffer really well and faithfully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if this ever happens to you. And if it just happens to me, that's fine. But when I'm reading my Bible, occasionally I'll come across a verse I don't believe. And, and, and I know that sounds bad. I'm, I'm the pastor and I realize that there's a problem there. But, but if I think about the verse for more than one second, don't just do like a cursory reading of the verse, you know, blah, 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 whatever. If I think about what the verse is saying, if I'm being honest with myself, which I'm not always honest with myself, and we're not always honest with, with ourselves, I, I think we realize that we don't actually believe 
What, what the author, what, what God is saying in that verse. And Romans 8.18 is one of those verses that I'm not sure if I always believe. Let me read it again for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The, the, the same unbelief, it crops up when I read a similar passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17, where Paul says this again, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Listen, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And if you're unclear as to what's being said, let, let me just translate these two verses combined. Paul, in fact, the whole Bible, testifies that our current suffering is not only not worth comparing to the glory to come, but if we were to compare, if we were to engage in this futile exercise, we would find that it is significantly less substantial, less weighty than the eternal glory that awaits us in heaven. So do you believe that this morning? The Bible tells us our suffering, indeed all the suffering the world has ever undergone, is a house of cards, a mud hut next to the skyscraper that is heaven. And if we're honest, again, if we're honest, for us it's often the reverse, right? The things that dominate our life, the, the skyscrapers, so to speak, surround questions of suffering, how bad suffering is, how we can avoid suffering, and how could, could God be possibly good in the face of it. And the, the, the house of cards, the, the mud hut, if you will, the unsubstantial truth we think is flimsy or insignificant is eternal glory in heaven with Jesus. We get it reversed. We miss it. So here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, I want us to climb the tower of eternal glory with Christ in heaven. And from that vantage point atop that skyscraper, I want us to look at our suffering from there. N not for a second am I suggesting that suffering is not real or insignificant or not evil. No, we'll see this morning, suffering, as real as it is, plays a significant role in helping us desire Jesus and to desire Jesus' heaven. But we'll see atop that skyscraper that the evil we thought would last forever won't. The, the enemy we thought would have the last laugh can't. And that terrible affliction we thought was surely meaningless isn't. We'll learn to say, alongside the 16th century nun, Teresa of Avia, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Today we're looking at suffering from the vantage point of heaven, that we would come to believe that our suffering is truly a light, momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We're going to unpack Romans 8, 18 to 30 in three ways. We're going to see first the reality of suffering. 
We're going to see second, the revealing in suffering, and third, the remedy to suffering. So the reality, the revealing, and the remedy. First, the reality of suffering. If we're going to talk about the relationship between heaven and suffering, we have to make sure that we begin in the right place and understand how the Bible actually understands suffering and the nature of suffering. See, the first thing we we have to see this morning, and and it's going to surprise us, and it will be uncomfortable for us, but it's this. Ready? God subjected all creation to suffering. I want to read Romans 8.20 again, this time in a different translation that makes it very plain for us. Paul writes, God's word says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. And and the reference that Paul is making here is to the Genesis story, Genesis 1 to 3, but specifically in Genesis 3 where we see God cursing creation. See, we have in Genesis 3 this rebellion, one author says, against God, which disrupted the relationships between God and humanity and creation. The exile of humanity from God's presence led to the gradual decay of the natural order and the introduction of death. And the logic of Romans 8, and and Paul flushes this out throughout our reading this morning, is that with our rebellion, we take all of creation with us. So just as we will be glorified and creation will come along for that glorification, so too did we drag down all of creation with us in our rebellion, in our desire to be little gods who rule our own little kingdoms. But notice, creation, if we can continue to personify it as Paul does, uh, does not want to go. So uh, the rocks and the rivers and the birds and the fish and the sun and the stars and the moon, all long, Paul says, for the day when Jesus returns. Indeed, from the exact moment of cursing in Genesis 3, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So why bring this up? Why bring this up? Why make a point of saying it was God who subjected creation to a curse? Why not read these verses quickly and then move on? See, it's because, I think this is true, at least of me at times, you and I by default are dualists. We're dualists. And here's what I mean by that. We believe, after watching like the 40th Marvel movie on repeat, right? We believe after watching these movies and thinking this way, that at the heart of reality are two equal and opposing forces, right? Yin and yang, right? Good and evil, right and wrong. We believe this is at the heart of reality. Or if we want to Christianize our dualism, we say there are two equal and opposing forces, God and Satan, right? Battling it out, eternal struggle. And suffering, we say, is the work and realm of Satan. And in one sense, it's true. Where Satan reigns in our nations, in our cities, and in our hearts, he leaves behind a train wreck of suffering. But the Bible is clear on this, that suffering does not exist because Satan got the upper hand. It does not exist because God is currently losing. It exists, Paul tells us, and we must hear it, Romans 8, 20 to 21, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. 
Him is God. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We have to begin here this morning because we will never begin to believe that suffering has a positive role to play in our life if we ultimately believe it to be something that could not possibly come from the hand of God. We don't celebrate suffering. We don't pray for suffering. We do not delight in suffering. But as a matter of foundational importance this morning, we must begin by acknowledging that our suffering, indeed the suffering of all creation, comes from the hand of God, which is, strange as it sounds, actually good news. Because Paul tells us all creation was subjected in hope. In hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, the God who subjected all creation under the curse is the same God who will save and redeem and restore all creation from suffering. And these two truths must fit together. If God was powerless, or disinterested, or overpowered at the introduction of suffering, what hope do we have that he will in fact bring about the conclusion of suffering? Do you see that? If God was powerless at the introduction of suffering, what hope do we have that he's actually powerful enough to bring about the conclusion of suffering? No, God subjected his creation in hope. In hope of what? In hope that we already are, what we already are will be finally revealed. See, see, Paul talks in this passage saying that we already are children of God. That's what verse 17 of Romans 8 is all about. We're already children of, children of God. He's saying you will be revealed one day as to what you already are. How is this true? In Genesis 3, in Genesis 3, in the, in the same breath, at the exact same moment we find God cursing creation, we also find him speaking a word of hope. We find him saying in Genesis 3, there will be one who comes, uh, the offspring, right? The seed of the woman who will come, who will crush the head of the serpent, of, of Satan. This one will bear the full weight of suffering and of sin, and in doing so, he will claim victory over evil. Thousands of years before Jesus, God promises this. Jesus comes and he does it. Jesus goes to the cross, and at a moment of apparent defeat, humiliating, shameful suffering, Jesus accomplishes for us what you and I could never accomplish for ourselves. He forgives us of our sin. His resurrection is proof that our sin has been forgiven. And now he is the first fruit of his inbreaking kingdom. The first fruit of heaven. Though right now we don't feel it. Though right now is cancer. Though right now is habitual Relentless sin, though right now is failure and famine, 
Though right now is war and racism and civil unrest, our hope, Paul says, is not in right now. Romans 8, 24, 25 says, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what is the reality of suffering? The reality of suffering is that God is sovereign over it, both its beginning and its end. But not only that, the reality of suffering is that God in Jesus has endured suffering that we could not imagine so that one day we may be freed from it. That we all might look ahead in hope for that day. That's the reality of suffering. That's how the Bible talks about suffering. Second thing is this, the revealing of suffering. Heaven, we've talked about for these past two weeks, is this place of revelation where, where we will be seen for who we truly are. Right? Fully perfected in the image of Christ. Also, all of creation will be seen for, for what it truly is as well. Waterfalls that are truly waterfalls and, and landscapes that are truly perfect. It's, it's a place of revelation, of seeing God and God seeing us and of being fully known. Yet there also is right now, today, some revelation to take place. There is a revealing of sorts that happens today. How? Well, you guessed it, through suffering. Now, different kinds of suffering, if you've suffered before, which I think many of us have, if not all of us, different kinds of suffering do a different kind of revealing work. Right? Physical suffering, the kind that has you writhing in pain in a hospital bed, exposes your delusions of personal autonomy and self-sufficiency. Suffering for your sin exposes the ugly parts of your heart, reveals to you the weightiness of your thoughts and your actions, your, your need for a savior. Suffering for the sin of others reveals to us that to put our trust and hope in people is, is foolishness. Witnessing devastating environmental abuse reveals to us just how far the curse is found. See, the revelations that come as a result of suffering are many and varied, but they all ultimately exist to remind us of one, one simple thing, that this world is not our home. That we groan along with all of creation for heaven. Paul writes this in verse 23. And not only the creation, it's not just creation groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I just want to ask this morning, like, are you groaning? This word here for, for groaning in our text is the language of lament. And it expresses like this inaudible sigh, this deep distaste and this deep distress as to the current state of affairs. That's groaning. Are you groaning this morning? 
Have you grown this past week while watching the news or experiencing evil in your neighborhood? Are you groaning this morning? Who groans? Who laments the current state of affairs? Paul tells us. He says, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And so I ask again, are you groaning this morning? Good. Good. Because that tells us that you have the down payment of the Holy Spirit in your life. That you have a longing for things not of this world. That you're dissatisfied with the status quo. It tells us that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Only those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit groan for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Groaning means we are feeling the disconnect between how things are and how things should be. Groaning means suffering is doing its work in us to pry our hands off of worldly things and cause us to long for eternal things. James says this when he writes his letter to the churches. This is how he begins. Imagine this introduction. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering wants to do a work in us. But two things, maybe more, probably more, but at least two things stand in our way. And the first is this. We do not like waiting. I don't like waiting. Ask anybody here who knows me. I don't like waiting. I hate it. And we do whatever we can to be immediately gratified and satiated. Paul says this, but if we hope for what we do not see, then what does he say? We wait for it with patience. With patience. Why is waiting so hard for us? In her book, uh, Dopamine Nation, psychiatrist Anne Lebke describes a culture, ours, steeped in overindulgence and pleasure. And in the introduction to the book, she describes the problem like this. It'll be up on the screen. She says, we've transformed the world from a place of scarcity to a place of overwhelming abundance. Drugs, food, news, gambling, shopping, gaming, texting, sexting, Facebooking, Instagramming, YouTubing, tweeting. The increased numbers, variety, and potency of highly rewarding stimuli today is staggering. She says the smartphone is a modern-day hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. If you haven't met your, your drug of choice yet, it's coming soon to a website near you. And in, a word, in the words of another author, in our secular age, we have all the power of the gods without any of their virtue. All the power of the gods, none of their virtue. Which is a problem <laughs> If one of the key things to enduring suffering right now is patiently waiting for the revelation of things to come. Patience is not in our vocabulary. 
And it's not in our vocabulary because it turns out our never-ending, never-satisfied quest for dopamine has come at the cost of our ability to think for the future. So in that book, Dopamine Nation, Lemke references a study where there's two groups of people. A group of people on one hand consisting of those addicted to opioids, the other group of people with no apparent addictions. And when both groups were asked to complete a story that started with the line, after awakening, Bill began to think about his future. In general, he expected to. When asked to complete that story, those addicted to opioids wrote about a future that was, on average, nine days long. The healthy group, 4.7 years. See, with the help of, of Lemke, here's what I think we can conclude. We don't desire heaven because we've lost the ability to be patient. And we've lost the ability to be patient because in our world of overwhelming abundance, we are still and always impatiently chasing our next hit. And I don't care if your drug of choice is socially acceptable or not. We're all chasing our next hit. Our eyes are here because that's where our pleasure is. Now, of course, the other side to our fervent pursuit of pleasure is our fervent avoidance of pain. And so speaking as a parent on this Father's Day, I think we do our kids a great disservice when we try to insulate them against the realities of pain and suffering. And so grandma gets sick or gets an owie to cover up for, for grandma's recent cancer diagnosis. And when we rush to assure them that she's gone to a better place, instead of lamenting and weeping like Jesus did over Lazarus, over the horror of death, we do them a great disservice. When we rush to switch the news from what's happening in Ukraine to some mindless animated kid show so we won't have to answer the hard questions, we do our kids and the next generation a great disservice. The psalmist says this, and again, maybe it's a verse we don't actually believe. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Can, can you imagine writing that verse? It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Charles Spurgeon, he comments on this verse, he says very succinctly, very little is to be learned without affliction. If that's true, what does that say about our generation? In this, I would include, we cannot learn to desire heaven if suffering is something we meet always with self-medication, avoidance, or disdain. And I know that this is a very, very hard word. And I confess, even as I wrote this week, I was struck by my fleshly disdain for the truth of God's word on this point. See, I want God to zap me with holiness. I want him to just zap me with self-control, to zap me with a renewed perspective on life, to zap me with patience, to zap me with a desire for heaven. I want all of this because I'm an immediate gratification junkie who has lost the ability to patiently wait. And so what does God do? What does he do? 
in mercy and in kindness, he sends suffering. One author writes this. God is working through hardship to pry open our hands and loosen our hearts from our tight grip on the here and now. He's working to release us from the hope that this present world will ever be the paradise that our hearts long for. He's employing suffering. What language? He's employing suffering to produce in our hearts a deep and motivating longing for a much, much better home, the eternal home that's the promise of his grace to us all. What in the here and now is gripping your heart this morning? What's gripping your heart? God is not satisfied with a little bit of your heart. He's not satisfied with an initial commitment. He wants all of you and all of us, even as he gives all of who he is to us. Did you notice something? God joins our groaning. Paul says that creation groans, that we groan, but also, verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He groans with us. What a picture of God himself joining our groaning by his Spirit. Except his groaning is, is not like ours. Our groaning is, is, is mixed with grumbling, dissatisfaction, pettiness, bitterness. His groaning is not like ours. In our suffering, when we do not pray as we ought, the Spirit prays on our behalf the things we would pray if we knew perfectly the will of God. Now, I'm a human being. I don't know if you know that. But, but I don't know exactly what the will of God is. But, but I imagine the Spirit prays all the things to the Father that I'm hesitant to pray myself. The scary prayers. You, you know those prayers. The Spirit asks for patience from the Father on our, on our behalf. I don't ever ask for patience. The Spirit asks the Father that this suffering would produce in us steadfastness. The Spirit asks the Father that we would not waste our suffering with grumbling and bitterness, but that it would pry our grip from the things of this world. And the Spirit groans with us, laments with us, longs with us that heaven might come. We have this morning the reality of suffering. We see now the revealing in suffering. Finally, we look at the remedy of suffering. In short, the remedy to suffering is, is hope. It's hope. It's trust. Trusting that, as Paul says in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Yet another verse I'm not sure we actually believe this morning. Daniel and Paul will tell you this week, I was sitting at my, our, our, my desk in our, in our office space, and they're, they're working over here, and they're just working away. And all of a sudden, I'm just weeping over here at my desk. And that happens, you know, at least once a week. Um, 
I was struck by Romans 8.28. I want to just read it for us again. And we know, and I want you to bring with you right now your whole life. And I imagine in this room there are some tragic and horrific stories. Stories I could not imagine. Evil I could not even imagine this morning. And yet the word of God remains true. And so we bring all of our life to Romans 8.28 and we say, and we know that for those who love God, all, not some, not most, not a little bit, all, all, Paul says, all things work together for our good. Human beings, as one author said, are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. If you have hope that the suffering you are enduring now is ultimately for your good, will ultimately bring you to maturity as you come into the gates of heaven, then you will be able to endure right now. There's an example of this in history. Uh, the songs composed by, by the African-American slaves in the 18th and 19th century were often criticized, often criticized for being too otherworldly. Too much about heaven and hell and judgment day and, you know, crowns and, 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 and thrones and, and, and things that were otherworldly, spiritual. And, and the critics would say what, what these slaves needed at that time was not these otherworldly songs, but, but real sort of practical lessons and, and real pragmatic strategies, not otherworldly fables and, and, and stories and, and, and myths. So they were criticized. But at a lecture, the African-American scholar Howard Thurman that he gave uh, to Harvard University in 1947, he set the record straight. He said this. He says, the facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. In other words, how did those slaves make it through that evil only in hope for the day to come? Not like an abstract hope, like a, a better thing in quotation marks. No, a, a real day with a real heaven, with a, a real Jesus, with a real Lord and a renewed creation. That was their hope. Not pragmatic strategies. You'll notice that the concluding verses of our text this morning speak about what God has already done for us. I want to read those again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. Okay? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God, predestining us to be conformed to the image of his Son, has already happened. God, calling us to saving faith, has already happened. God, declaring not guilty those whom he called, what? Has already happened. And God glorifying, welcoming into heaven in a new resurrection body, those he has justified, has already happened. 
How is this true? I, I pray that your hope soars on this point. From God's perspective, from atop that skyscraper, a perspective that we will one day share in heaven, your glorification is as good as done. Come on. Your glorification is as good as done. As one commentator said, the issue is settled. Just as your justification is settled, so too is your glorification. Just as your adoption is settled, so too is your glorification. Just as you being predestined is settled, so too is your glorification. Oh, may all our suffering be met with this unshakable hope. A hope written in the very mind of God. A hope that is as sure as our salvation. That Christ the King is coming soon to wipe every tear. Heal every broken bone. Right every wrong. Renew every corner and square inch of his creation to the praise of his glory and grace. Christ City, may we together long for that day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So God, we rest on your word this morning to us. And that he who has started a good work in us will bring this good work to completion. Indeed, to glory. Help us. Help us. Help us. In this now but not yet time to live faithfully. To not waste the suffering you have brought into our life. But to see it as an opportunity to loosen our grip on this world and the things of this world. And to long even more zealously for our eternal home with you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.